for $12 per line. We will insert one advertisement, one month, in 229 first-class New York newspapers, including 22 dailies. We refer to the publisher of this paper, to whom our responsibility is well known. List sent free. Address George P. Rowell and Company, Advertising Agents, Number 41 Park Row, New York. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 37. I am excited to share a remarkable article with you tonight that was printed 150 years ago today in the New York Daily Tribune. But first, the tea of the night. And I cannot overstate this, I am a big idiot who once again forgot to reserve his last cup of caffeine for his podcast. Honestly, I don't think I really in my heart expected to be ready to cut an episode tonight. Uh, I guess George Michael was right. You gotta have faith a faith a faith a baby. Anyway, this is my stopgap ginger tea. Oh, just right. Once again, I took that out of the freezer and shaved it myself. A little stevia after a good long steep, and I'm good to go. So, back to that article that was printed 150 years ago today. I'm going to save that for the very last because it is so exquisitely snarky. I promise you it'll be worth it. And speaking of which, I promise you that it is relevant to the historical interpretation that I'm trying to get across here using newspapers as a lens to view 19th century politics, society, what have you. That's not always easy to see, so once again, I'm going to ask you to trust me. Uh, I want to hit you with these articles and then give you a little more background at the end. So we're going to start with another related article that was also printed 150 years ago today. This one was in the Syracuse Daily Journal. Salt and the Tariff The Salt Company of Onondaga to the Chicago Tribune To the editor of the Chicago Tribune, our attention has been called to the article in your paper of the 14th instant, headed The Salt Combination containing some very gross errors in regard to us and our business. We ask leave to correct them in your columns. Never expected to like ginger tea this much. Thank my wife for that, uh, for for my having come to like it. Back to the article. We preface what we are about to say by stating that on the 18th of March last... We addressed a letter to the New York world in which we refuted various unintentional yet very rash and careless misrepresentations of this paper and in the course of which we made the particular statement that a bushel of loose salt weighing 56 pounds cost 
last year at our works 28 and a half cents without including any interest or dividend upon our moneyed capital employed in the business. We also stated that so far from making large profits, we sustained last year a very serious loss. It appears that you have read our letter as well as the rejoinder put in by the world at the time of publishing it after three weeks delay. It appears also that like the world, you totally discredit what we felt compelled to say about ourselves and insist that we are making large and unreasonable profits. Your conclusion is that the tariff on salt should be immediately and totally repealed. If a question of so much importance is to depend on the condition of a particular salt-producing company, it is proper that the facts should be understood. This is our excuse. Sufficient as we think, for communicating with the public. The basis of your calculation is as follows. Assuming the truth of our statement that a bushel of salt cost us 23.5 cents, you jump to what you think an easy mathematical conclusion, that a barrel containing five bushels must cost $1.17.5. You then state with some inaccuracies of no great importance, our price list per barrel for the present year. Correcting your inaccuracies, it is as follows. <clears throat> At Rome, Syracuse, per barrel, $1.75. Sorry, that's at home, Syracuse. At all Lake Erie ports, $2. At all Michigan ports, $2.10. At Cincinnati, $2. At St. Louis, 2.40. In Canada, we have no market, being now excluded by foreign salt and by the salt produced at Goderich on Lake Huron. In New York and on the seaboard, we take whatever price we can get in competition with foreign salt. We send there what would otherwise be a large surplus in our production, but we never made out of it any profit whatever. We now point out to you the very serious mistake into which you have been led taking $1.17.5 as the cost of a barrel of salt on the admitted basis of 23.5 cents a bushel, and then comparing these figures with our price list per barrel, you say the resulting profit is at least $1 million per annum. As we make nearly 9 million of bushels, your more ciphering, your mere ciphering, would not be very much out of the way. But you and the New York world talk with great fluency of matters which, to say the least, we understand much better than you do. We beg you to remember that we stated the cost of a bushel of loose salt at 23 and a half cents. <clears throat> you will please also to take notice of the fact that when loose salt is put into a barrel, the cost of the cask and of packing, nailing, must be added. And we now inform you that these items were last year 50 cents for each barrel. Thus, you have $1.67.5 as the prime cost of a barrel of salt at our works without interest or dividends on our capital stock. This leaves only a margin of 7.5 cents a barrel, or 1.5 cents a bushel, between prime cost and our price list at home. And this small margin is considerably more than taken up if you will allow the Illinois rate of interest on the moneyed capital we are obliged to have and use in so extensive a business. But there are other elements of the question. At least 19 twentieths of our product is sent to our agents and sold by them. The average cost of agencies and sale is about 10 cents per barrel. Again, we pay freights very nearly as follows to New York, 25 cents per barrel, to all the Lake Erie ports, 25 cents, and to the Lake Michigan ports, 35 cents. Now, if you will look at facts and figures, if you will take the prime cost of salt packed in the barrel and ready for market, if you will add thereto the cost of agencies and of transportation, and then compare the result with the price list, even as you state it is <clears throat> the more accurate list as we have given to you, you will not fail to see that the profits you impute to us have not only disappeared altogether, but have left a serious loss in their place. Such was our experience last year, and such it was in more than one antecedent year since the close of the war. 
if you hesitate to believe what we say, we beg to assure you that we are the best authority because we know more about our business than anyone else can know. Our books are freely open to your examination or the examination of any agent you will accredit to us. It is true that we made large profits during the way, during the war, not so much out of the tariff on salt as out of the anomalous circumstances of that period. The commerce of the Mississippi was blocked up. The Kanawha salt works were destroyed by the enemy, and other domestic salt interests were not then developed. In our letter to the world, we explained how the result was unavoidable unless we had surrendered up our product to speculators and the still higher prices which they would have charged the consumers. Our unfortunate prosperity during that period may, for what we know, be turned not only to our destruction, but to the destruction also of other domestic salt interests, which are innocent of the offense imparted to us. It affords the only argument we remember to have noticed in the newspaper attacks upon the tariff on salt. According to our limited comprehension, it is a very feeble one. We do not wish you or anyone else to believe from what we have said that we or expect to become that we are or expect to become bankrupt in our business. It is quite evident, however, that we must reduce expenses. We are trying now to reduce a little the cost of labor and fuel, but our laborers are on a strike at this moment. We are trying also to curtail in other directions. We hope to succeed so far as to render our price list very moderately profitable. If you can tell us how to do any better than that, we pray not. We pray you not to withhold the information. You may even repeal the tariff, and yet we shall not wholly abandon the field. Of course we should be obliged to retire from the seaboard, <clears throat> the tidewaters, and the markets which uh, can be reached with foreign salt by the great rivers of the country. The markets for uh, domestic salt would shrink one-third or one-half, and perhaps still more. Capital, labor, and industry would shrink in a comparative degree. We would be glad to have you give some particular attention to the question whether salt would be permanently cheapened to the consumer by such a result. Please, do compare the existing prices throughout the West and those of the free trade period, keeping in mind the difference between currency and gold, and remembering also that we are yet in a period of general inflation. We know your general views are opposed to protection, and we do not ask you to change them. Upon this field of controversy we do not enter. If you say that universal free trade is best and we must have it, we yield the point so far as the question between you and us is concerned. Under that policy, the prices of all things would quickly descend to a much lower level. We could produce cheaper, and if we could make a little money, it would be worth more. We call your attention to this one fact. Before the present tariff, our labor was seven shillings per day. Under the tariff and during the war, it rose to 16 shillings and then receded to 14 shillings, which we have paid ever since. We are now trying to reduce it to 12, and our laborers have struck. Again, the cost of producing coal, which is the largest item of expense, has nearly doubled within the last 10 years. We do not discuss the general question, but... <clears throat> Moved by the great law of self-preservation, we do earnestly protest against your warfare upon us as a particular interest. You must surely understand that we cannot produce salt at a cost of labor, fuel, and other things, inflated by a protective system, and then sell at free trade prices. Such a policy must drive us from the markets, of which the importers would then be the lord and the master." We know your plan of attack upon the tariff generally because you have plainly avo avowed it. You regard salt as a mere outpost to be taken, and you attack that by assailing us as a particular interest or company. You propose to march over our dead bodies to other victories. We must defend the post as long as we can, and when our strength fails, we will call upon the mighty reserves which are behind us. The Salt Company of Onondaga attest J.W. 
Barker, Secretary, Syracuse, April 23, 1871. Hugh here. Hey, you're still with me. Congratulations, and I really appreciate it. I know how boring that was. However, again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's exactly this sort of thing that seems so impossibly boring that is crucial in order to understand the politics and economics of the 19th century. And I'm going to stop right there, and I'm going to emphasize I am no expert. When I say it's crucial to understand this, I'm not pretending that I understand it fully. I only understand it well enough to know the Brobdingnagian weight that these issues of free trade versus protection occupy within the newspapers of this time, and therefore I infer how literally incomprehensible to me their importance is because I'm living in a time when we didn't tether our personalities, our sense of self-worth, our sense of political and social and geographical identification with the ideology of free trade versus protection. We have different such axes to contend with today. I'm not saying tariffs aren't important today. I'm just saying we do not ascribe such core aspects of ourselves to our alignment with free trade versus protectionist policies. Then they did, and that's something you have to understand to properly interpret history of this time. Historic Headlines will return after this brief commercial message. A card. A clergyman, while residing in South America as a missionary, discovered a safe and simple remedy for the cure of nervous weakness, early decay, diseases of the urinary and seminal organs, and the whole train of disorders brought on by baneful and vicious habits. Great numbers have been cured by this noble remedy, prompted by a desire to benefit the afflicted and unfortunate. I will send the recipe for preparing and using this medicine in a sealed envelope to anyone who needs it, free of charge. Address Joseph T. Inman, Station D, Bible House, New York City. We now return to our show. Before I move on to that article I teased in the New York Daily Tribune, I want to lead it with another article from the same edition of the Syracuse Daily Journal, again, April 28, 1871, 150 years ago today. What the World Promises The New York world has made ten promises of what the Democratic Party will do when in power. These promises, however, must be received with much caution, for the world cannot speak authoritatively on some of the points at issue. It is quite evident that the world is not the oracle from which Southern Democrats learn what they consider political wisdom. For on several occasions, Southern Democratic journals and speakers have informed the world that they will not be bound by its utterances. The first promise made by the world is that the Democratic Party, quote, will limit the annual taxes to $250 million, and out of this moderate revenue will apply $25 million towards the extinction of the public debt, end quote. But we would inquire, why did the Democrats in the 41st Congress regularly vote against Republican measures to reduce taxation? They talked reduction of taxation, but they voted against it. Have the Democrats experienced a change of heart? To say that they will limit annual taxes to $250 million is an absurdity. Wherever the Democrats are in either municipal or state power, taxes have been nearly doubled. What assurances have we that they will do any different if they succeed in acquiring national power. Beautiful economy is that which the Democratic Party in this state has observed. It is not rather presuming 
Is it not rather presuming in the world to talk about reduction of taxation in the face and eyes of the increase of taxation since Tammany has controlled the state? The world's second promise is that the Democratic Party will revise and reform the system of taxation so that this diminished annual burden of $250 million will be equitably distributed. But ever since the first year of the war, the Democrats have cried, Down with the taxes, as though they were innocent of the causes which increased the taxes. And yet, let the public mark, these same Democrats have never yet brought forward a measure in Congress by which they proposed to revise and reform the system of taxation. They have indulged in plenty of diatribe and have opposed Republican measures for reduction and revision, but they have not shown the ability to present a plan of their own, of which they could say to the people, See, this is our plan. What think you of it? Now, while the world promises revision, the people will question the ability of the Democratic Party to fulfill the promise. In fact, they will prefer to rely upon the Republican Party, which has already made a splendid record on that point. Another of the world's promises is that its party, quote, will extend and complete the system of universal suffrage by abolishing the term of residence of residence now required for naturalization and giving intelligent white immigrants the same advantages enjoyed by our colored population, end quote. Says that journal, quote, the German who emigrates to Texas and buys a farm should at once be as favored a citizen as the South Carolina Negro who emigrates to Texas in the same year and is employed by the German as a laborer, end quote. This is simply a bid for the German vote, and like most other democratic pledges, it is utterly hollow. But the world goes further in its promises. It says the Democratic Party will faithfully fulfill all the obligations created by the public debt in their letter and spirit. How long since the Democratic Party has become reconciled on this point? Quite recently, the public heard the toxin of the repudiation of letter and spirit sounded by Democrats in certain sections of the Union. When was a reconciliation of views affected? The world promises that the Democratic Party, quote, will recognize the binding force of the three new amendments to the Constitution so long as they are held to be valid by the Supreme Court, end quote. <clears throat> Indeed, but Frank Blair makes no such recognition, nor does Jefferson Davis, nor does the Southern Democratic Press, nor do the Southern Fire Eaters. These promises cannot be guaranteed by existing facts. They are as sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. We'll be right back after this message. Dr. Charles Smith, Office Rooms, 21 and 22 Learned Building, Syracuse, New York. Dr. Smith treats scrofula, rheumatism, dyspepsia, canker, salt room, neuralgia, erysipelas, liver complaints, catarrh, scrofula, sore eyes, also cures syphilitic scrofula in its most malignant forms. No charges for consultation. Fayetteville, Onondaga County, New York, November 6th, 69. Dr. Charles Smith, dear sir, last March when you first called on me, I was not able to get out of the house. I was afflicted with scrofula sores from head to foot and had been treated by several good physicians for four years previous to your attending me. When you made your first visit, my parents told you they thought it would be of no use to commence with another physician, for others had given me up. Hearing the remarks, you told them that you would cure me if they would guarantee that I should take your medicine according to your directions. They promised I should do so, and before I had taken three courses of your medicine, I was perfectly cured, and have never enjoyed better health than I have for the past four months. I am twenty-five years old, and I must acknowledge that I am indebted to you and your medicine for my present existence and good health that I now enjoy. Julia A. 
Chandler. And we're back. Remember that testimonial with the name signed at the end. That's going to come in very important in a whole bunch of features that I'm going to do on ad campaigns, both during this era and 50 years in the future. So, I hope that last article I read from the Syracuse Journal gave you some perspective on the kind of rivalries that went on between newspapers of this time and how the political and the social aspects of that culture interacted with the media to form a, a social media ecosystem that fosters, fostered flame wars every bit as intensely as it does today. I'm going to keep hammering this point, folks. Uh, get used to it. There is nothing new about our social media of 2021. Uh, reading these articles, all of this heightened vitriolic exchange sounds perfectly familiar. The Syracuse Journal was in a spat with two papers at the same time, essentially fighting a social media war that echoed in the halls of the New York Senate on two fronts. Now, we're going to move on to the New York Tribune. Again, 150 years ago today. Onondaga Salt. To the editor of the New York World. Hugh here. I just want to accentuate that. This is published in the Tribune, but it's a letter from Syracuse directed at the New York world. <clears throat> Sir, the salt swindlers of Syracuse, as you courteously and elegantly call us, beg to have a few more words with you. You say we shall be, quote, abundantly gratified, end quote, when we seek discussion, and therefore we feel encouraged to ask again a small space in your columns. And first, we thank you very much for publishing our letter to you of March 18th. True, you delayed three weeks after we sent it to you, but we found other means of getting it before the public, and therefore we did not suffer greatly by your delay. True, also, you prefaced it with a fresh attack three columns long, but we find a com compensation in your pleasant and gentlemanly style of composition. On the whole, we do not feel inclined to take your advice and close up our business, and we wish we could persuade you to think better both of our business and of ourselves. You have so often called us swindlers, or used toward us other terms of that import, that we suppose you must by this time believe what you say. It seems useless, therefore, so far as you are concerned, to plead to the indictment. Indeed, we have such confidence in your judgment that our own impressions as to who and what we are are becoming somewhat confused. You will therefore please to take our general confession of guilt, and we will content ourselves with urging some extenuating circumstances upon your compassionate consideration. You say we are monopolists, and of course swindlers, first because, quote, on the coast of California there is an island, Carmen, where salt can be shoveled up free gratis, end quote. And you add that the tariff on salt prevents this from being done. We confess our guilt in respect to this island, but urge in mitigation that we never heard of it before. We moreover deferentially suggest that Inasmuch as it would cost us about $10 a barrel to produce and send our salt across the continent, and inasmuch as the article can be had on this island for nothing, we see no reason why the people of California should not supply themselves. The duty would be precisely 50 cents and 4 mills for each barrel of 280 pounds. The people would have cheap salt, and each person consuming it would have 
an addition in addition, the patriotic satisfaction of contributing about 10 cents per annum to the revenue of our government. Being, as we are, culprits as to this island, we make the suggestion with diffidence. Your next charge against us, and you prove by a letter from a Michigan salt producer that we have competed for the markets in the states lying on the Great Lakes and the Ohio and the Mississippi rivers, by selling at low prices, and have thereby caused loss to other salt-producing interests. This is so very unusual for individuals and companies engaged in the same kind of business that we suppose it must involve some great moral depravity. But we plead, in extenuation of our guilt, that in the very markets where this competition has taken place, our prices have been, with great uniformity, just a shade better than those charged by our rivals. If we have competed with them, they have competed with us, and it would be very hard to tell who has suffered most. No doubt we are all swindlers and pirates because we did not combine for protection against one another. But you make it a still more serious ground of accusation that we do not any longer continue this destructive competition, but have actually come to a friendly understanding with the Western salt-producing interests for the purpose of avoiding the mutual losses to which you refer. Of course we are guilty of this offense also, but as none of our customers complain, we think you ought to be merciful. We suggest, moreover, that this count in your indictment is so totally inconsistent with the other that you, as the prosecutor, ought to elect upon which you will stand. You are not pleased if we compete and reduce prices, nor if we unite and raise them. We wish we could conduct our affairs more to your satisfaction. We are greatly perplexed with a doubt whether we have sinned most in charging high or in charging low prices for our salt. In your minds, the latter offense seems the gravest, for we are accused by you of furnishing cheap salt, also in the New York market and to the fishermen of New England, very much to the prejudice of the trade in the foreign article. We humbly confess the fact that we have been selling vast quantities of salt in these markets at very low rates, but our excuse is that we have always tried to get better prices and could not. We suppose we ought to have kept our salt at home, or rather we should not have made it at all. Such is manifestly your opinion, and we can only plead that the trading and business portion of mankind have generally acted on a different theory. But here is your indictment in regard to the Canada market. You say, again in Canada, where no duty is imposed on the import of salt, the Onondaga Company sell cheaper salt than they will sell from their own works in Syracuse, and cheaper than foreign salt can be imported. An attempt was made to produce salt at Goderick, Canada West, but the Syracuse Company at once invaded Canada, established an agency, and sold salt at $1.60, thus disposing of that infant industry. End quote. This is perhaps the worst of all our sins. We have not only, as you show, been selling salt cheap all over the United States, except in the territory immediately around us, but we have actually crossed the Great Lakes with a home production and taken possession of a foreign market. And for this offense, you think we ought to receive condign punishment. It may be that your judgment is slightly influenced by your unconcealed preference of foreign over domestic interests. But before your final sentence is pronounced, we ask your leave to state the facts. There was a time when we did take the large market of Upper Canada, and we kept there an important agency. But the salt mines, or waters of Goderick, were discovered and developed. So far from our disposing of that infant industry, it effectually disposed of us by driving us out of that market. We were compelled to close our agency, and we now send no salt to Canada. The knowledge of this fact will be to you the occasion of pleasant thoughts and emotions, and will, we hope, engender more kindly feelings toward us. We confess the truth, 
of the charges that we have often sold salt in the country around our works at higher prices than we have got at the more distant markets of the West, the seaboard, and Canada. It is an extenuating circumstance that if a small population near to us have paid more, the great populations at a distance have paid less. If the few do not indict us for this offense, why should you, who profess to speak for the many? The grievance of which you complain is not that we sell at home for too little, but that we sell away from home for too little. Uh, it's not that we sell at home for too much, but that we sell away from home for too little. For this reason you wish to crush us. You plead not for the people, but for foreign salt interests. We compete with them, as you persist in saying, with our low prices, and therefore you denounce us and denounce the tariff which enables us to do so. Again, it may seem to you strange and anomalous that we should sell the cheaper the further we carry our salt, but we respectfully suggest that the laws of trade have something to do with this. If we carry a barrel of salt 1,000 miles and find there other barrels of salt produced nearby and competing with us at low rates, we must sell for what we can get or withdraw from the market. What we can do in markets distant from us, other salt interests can do, and have the right to do, in markets distant from them and near to us. The law of trade is the great regulator of us all. Generally speaking, all people who have commodities for sale are allowed to sell in all places for what they can reasonably get. We are the only exception to that we have heard of. Some other matters contained in your article claim a brief attention. We told you in our former letter that a bushel of loose salt cost us last year at the works 23 and one half cents, and that so far from making profits on our sales, we sustained a very serious loss. We courteously invited you to an examination of the facts and figures. Without examination, you deny our statements on the authority of some nameless fool or monstrous liar who writes, you say, from Syracuse. This writer tells you, <clears throat> and you swallow his statement, that if a bushel of salt costs 23 and one-half cents, a barrel of five bushels would cost $1.17 and a half cents, and consequently, at the prices per barrel for which we sold, we must have made enormous profits. You will now please to observe that when loose salt is put into a barrel, the cost of the packing and of the barrel must be added. This amounted last year to 50 cents, and thus we have $1.67.5 as the prime cost at home of a barrel of salt. You will please to observe further that nearly all our salt is sold by agents, and that the average cost or commission at the agencies is 10 cents per barrel. Thus you will see that in order to save ourselves from actual loss, our salt must net at our works $1.77.5 per barrel. But we pay also for freights to New York, 25 cents, to the ports of Lake Erie, 25 cents, and to the ports of Lake Michigan, 35 cents. Those are our principal markets, and you will see at a glance that to avoid loss we must have sold in New York at $2.25, at Toledo at two and a two dollars two and a half cents and at Chicago at two dollars twelve and a half cents. Your nameless correspondent tells you that we sold under these figures except the small quantities we sell at home. As we do not intend to have our statement caviled again by some knave, demagogue, or idiot, we will be more precise as to the cost of a barrel of salt. Cost of fuel and boiling common salt was 17 cents per bushel or per barrel of five bushels, $85. The state duty, one cent per bushel, $5. Packing per barrel, $6. Cask or barrel, 44 Rent of the salt blocks, 20 Taxes of all kinds and local expenses, 10 Total prime cost per barrel, $1.70. Our solar salt, con constituting about one-fourth of our pro production, is produced about 15 cents per barrel cheaper, and the average result is $1.67.5 as above stated. 
The cost of transportation and of agencies must be added before you can compare the cost with the prices in our extended markets. If you can descend to facts and will look into these figures, you will know something about the business of which you speak so flippantly and yet so wildly. You will begin to see how and why we sustained, last year, the loss of which we told you, and this will be a consolation to feelings which no doubt have been greatly outraged by the belief that we are making money without dividing it among the newspapers and editors who are eternally carping at us. It will be a further consolation to you to know that our present prospects are not eminently encouraging. The friendly interest you take in our private affairs will justify you in calling for our price list per barrel for the year 1871. It is at your service as follows. At home, with transportation to be added for interior New York and northern Pennsylvania, $1.76. At Buffalo, Cleveland, and Detroit, $2. At Chicago and Milwaukee, two ten. At Cincinnati, 2 At St. Louis, two forty. In Canada, we have no market or price. In New York, and as and on the seaboard, where we sell two or three millions of bushels annually, we have no fixed price and sell for all that we can get. In that market, we never made a profit, but we intend to hold it for the honor of American salt as long as we can. You and the Evening Post may drive us out, but your readers will pay dearer for salt than they now do. If you think the price list just given you is a low one, we beg to assure you it is the best we can do with our salt. Knowing something of our own business and affairs, we think we should lose more than we should gain by putting the rates higher. With these figures before you, if you can tell us how we are to make anything beyond very small profits for the year 1871, we will thank you with our whole soul for the information. If we look through the vista of future years, we see nothing more encouraging. Still, we think we can live, and we mean to live. We make the best common, packing, curing, table, and dairy salt in the world. We take infinite pains in the elaboration and perfection of our processes, and we think, under providence and the discriminating favor of the American people, we shall survive your absurd and unreasonable enmity. In our letter, we said to you that you might have all our salt works and take all the advantages of our business for the next twenty years if you would guarantee to us a return of seven percent per annum on the capital invested. Your answer is a tirade of abuse on account of profits made by us during the war, by which our capital was increased to an extent still inadequate to the transaction of our business. Besides our salt works, we actually use throughout the year nearly $2 million of other capital, at least one-third of which we constantly borrow. Our bills payable today are nearly $600,000. If you do not believe it, we pray you to come and look at our books. <clears throat> but we will now put our proposition in such form that it cannot be misunderstood or misrepresented. All our salt works and erections shall be valued at such a sum as it would now cost in cash to build them. Our moneyed capital shall be reckoned at its actual amount after deducting all liabilities. These sums added together shall be the principle on which we will accept a guarantee of 7% annual income. There shall be nothing watered, nothing fictitious. True it is that our cash capital has been mostly earned in the past years of the war. Still, it is ours, and we will make it over to you on the terms proposed. We suppose you will rail at us again for making this proposal. It is, however, made in sincerity and earnestness, and it is open to all mankind. <clears throat> You charge again upon us the sin of having made large profits. We candidly admitted the fact in our former letter, but we truly explained that one portion of this profit was due to extraordinary good fortune in coal, as incidentally connected with our business, and that the residue was made during the blockade of the Mississippi, and under the anomalous circumstances produced by the war. We repent in dust and ashes of this great sin, and we will do work meet for repentance. Even if we were willing, it seems to be beyond our power to repeat the offense, but are we the only interest that made money out of the war? 
Look at the army of merchants, manufacturers, contractors, speculators, and editors who prospered and made fortunes during that extraordinary period. Be compassionate toward us and turn away upon 10,000 other and greater offenders some portion of your virtuous wrath and indignation. Before closing, we desire once more to have a few words with you about the tariff on salt. And first, you are in the constant habit of overstating the rate of duty. You and other organs of free trade variously represent it to be from 100 to 200 percent. If your basis of calculation is the cost of producing the cheapest and poorest brand of salt in foreign countries, where labor is cheap, you may be right. If you take the average cost or price of salt in the ports of this country, it does not exceed 30 or 33 percent. On the costlier brands, like the Ashton salt, it is less than 25. The actual duty is 18 cents per 100 pounds, equal to 50 cents four mills per barrel of 280 pounds. Why should not the public know the exact truth? As the result of the local situation and long-established position of Onondaga Salt, we are the chief domestic competitors with the foreign article. Hine ille lacrime. Hence, your tears and your rage against us. You cry out against us because we undersell the importers in New York. The fishermen of New England prefer our diamond solar to any salt in the world. You say, down with the tariff, down with our salt, down with us, and down with competition, so that the importer may be the lord of the market and may prosper and thrive. You and other free trade organs have boldly avowed the principle which animates you in this reckless and unprincipled war upon us. You propose no general and well-considered revision of the tariff, no substitute for the existing law. You explicitly say that protection must be assailed by an attack upon some special interest. You select salt as the outpost to be stormed, but you have not the courage and manliness to debate even the question of protection to that article, for you and to attain your end by intermeddling with the business and discussing the affairs of a particular company. The statesmanship of your course is equaled only by its candor and fairness. Did it ever occur to you to inquire whether there is such a thing as honesty in the discussion even of public questions? But a few days ago, the Free Trade League, of which you are the organ, memorialized Congress against the repeal of the duties on tea and coffee on the ground that the resulting loss of revenue might lead to the retention of the duty on salt and some other articles produced in this country. Your columns have protested on the same ground. Satan never revealed his cloven foot more distinctly than you reveal thus the motive of, of your attacks upon us. Tea and coffee are not produced in the United States, and the importers are without competition. The duty is therefore precisely and mathematically and addition of so much to the price which the consumer must pay. This you are in favor of. You remonstrate against relieving the poor man from this tax. But salt is an American as well as a British production. Our markets take 20 million bushels of domestic and 12 million bushels of foreign salt, and the two maintain a struggling competition with each other which regulates the price. But you say, repeal the duty on this article, drive out the American manufacturer, and let the foreigner have the market to himself. In short, you, your openly avowed policy is to retain the duties which the consumer must pay, because there is no competition, and repeal them where competition keeps down the price. These are the principles of the Free Trade League and of the New York world. But we tell you again, as we told you in our former letter, that we make no general issue with you on the question of protection and free trade. Indeed, we are ignorant of the extent to which you propose to push your doctrines. If you mean a revenue tariff, that is, a tariff which will produce the best revenue, we agree to it so far as you, our interest is concerned. But you propose to march to some kind of victory over our dead bodies. 
you recklessly intend to repeal, now and at once, the duty on our production without offering us the compensation of a repeal, or even of a modification of other protective duties. We must pay the high prices of a protective system for labor and for every item which enters into cost. We must sell at the dead level of absolute free trade or close up our business. This is your justice. We are to be destroyed in order, as you openly declare, that you may obtain some future triumph, the nature of which you do not define, over other interests. Against such as an unprincipled warfare, we shall defend ourselves with all the weapons which God and nature have put in our hands. The Salt Company of Onondaga. Attest, J. W. Barker, Secretary, Syracuse, April 20th. 1871. Hugh here. We'll be right back after this message with that promised background material. Dr. Russell J. White, analytical physician. Dr. Russell J. White can be consulted at his offices as follows. Utica, Baggs Hotel, Tuesday and Wednesday, the 9th and 10th of May. Rome, Stanwick's Hall, Friday and Saturday until 3 p.m., the 12th and 18th of May. Oneida, Allen's Hotel, Wednesday, the 17th of May. Clyde, Clyde Hotel, Thursday, the 18th of May. Syracuse, Empire House, Saturday, the 29th of April, Monday, the 29th of May, and Saturday, the 1st of July. Tully, Empire House, Tuesday, the 30th of May. Cortland, Messenger House, Wednesday, the 31st of May. Auburn, National Hotel, Friday, the 30th of June and the 28th of April. Buffalo, Principal Office, 504 Franklin Street, two doors above Allen Street. Dr. White treats successfully scrofula, hip disease, fever sores, ulcers, paralysis, rheumatism, fits, nervous maladies, female difficulties, diseases of the lungs, heart, throat, liver, and kidneys, running from the ear, inflammation of the eyes, and all forms of catarrh. The above diseases we make a specialty. Our practice is founded on truth of 25 years standing and differs from all others. No trifling with human existence, sacrificing life by experiment. We know when we examine a patient the cause of the disease and remedy to, to remove it, not by guessing, but by knowledge. Consultations are free. A special attention paid to, to diseases of women and children. And we're back. So I'm going to read to you from ushistory.org. This is from the article about Jackson versus Clay and Calhoun. I picked this more or less arbitrarily. It was just the first thing that came up to give a succinct overview of what I consider to be the most powerful kernel embedded in our shared history from which this... Uh, antipathy between the two poles of protectionism and free trade arose. Andrew Jackson viewed Henry Clay, the great compromiser, as opportunistic, ambitious, and untrustworthy. Henry Clay was viewed by Jackson as politically untrustworthy, an opportunistic, ambitious, and self-aggrandizing man. He believed that Clay would compromise the essentials of American Republican democracy to advance his own self-serving objectives. Jackson also developed a political rivalry with his vice president, John C. Calhoun. Throughout his term, Jackson waged political and personal war with these men, defeating Clay in the presidential election of 1832 and leading Calhoun to resign as vice president. Jackson's personal animosity towards Clay seems to have originated in 1819 when Clay denounced Jackson for his unauthorized invasion of Spanish West Florida in the previous year. 
Clay was also instrumental in John Quincy Adams's winning the presidency, presidency from Jackson in 1824 when neither man had a majority and the election was thrown into the House of Representatives. Adams' appointment of Clay as Secretary of State confirmed Jackson's opinion that the presidential election had been thrown to Adams as part of a corrupt and unprincipled bargain. Roads and canals were built across the nation during the early to mid-1800s. Clay's American system would have funded such improvements. Clay was called the Great Compromiser and served in the Congress starting in 1806. He had a grand strategic vision called the American System. This was a federal government initiative to foster national growth through protective tariffs, internal improvements, and the Bank of the United States. Clay was unswerving in his support for internal improvements, which primarily meant federally funded roads and canals. Jackson believed the American system to be unconstitutional. Could federal funds be used to build roads? He vetoed the Maysville Road Bill, Clay's attempt to fund internal improvements. His veto of the bank recharter bill drove the two further apart. Calhoun and Jackson held separate views on many issues, including states' rights. Jackson's personal animosity for Calhoun seems to have had its origin in the Washington social scene of the time. Jackson's feelings were inflamed by the Mrs. Calhoun's treatment of Peggy, wife of Jackson's Secretary of War, John Eaton. Mrs. Calhoun and other wives and daughters of several cabinet officers refused to attend social gatherings and state dinners to which Mrs. Eaton had been invited because they considered her of a lower social station and gossiped about her private life. Jackson, reminded of how rudely his own wife, Rachel, was treated, defended Mrs. Eaton. Many political issues separated Jackson from Calhoun, his vice president. One was the issue of states' rights. Hoping for sympathy from President Jackson, Calhoun and the other states' rights party members sought to trap Jackson into a pro-states' rights public pronouncement at a Jefferson birthday celebration in April 1832. Some of the guests gave toasts, which sought to establish, establish a connection between a states' rights view of government and nullification. Finally, Jackson's turn to give a toast came, to give a toast came, and he rose and challenged those present. Our federal union, it must be preserved. Calhoun then rose and stated, the union, next to our liberty, the most dear. Jackson had humiliated Calhoun in public. The nullification crisis that would follow served as the last straw. Jackson proved that he was unafraid to stare down his enemies, no matter what position they might hold. Hugh here. Think about all that. Think about the big dick energy on display there. Think about the manliness of the era and the dueling mentality. That was a duel of cults of personality. And that was only 40 years previous to everything I've been reading. So it was still culturally relevant, culturally fresh, and the, the, the wounds of those personal slights were still open. And let me tell you, I highly recommend reading American Lion, the Jackson biography, because I was, I blanched at the similarities between Jackson and Trump as a cult of personality. Jackson was as horrific as disgusting and pathetic and and just 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 as much of a monster as Trump in certain narrow ways but in particular there was this there was this aspect of he delighted the people who loved him by disgusting the people who hated him and hence the comparison uh, that I'm drawing between Jackson and Trump, and hence my interpretation of, of, of the tariff people versus the protection people as an expression of a cult of personality, sort of a big dick energy affair that lay at the core of the politics of this time. 
I don't believe it's possible to to really understand the world of 150 years ago without understanding that rivalry. And for more on that, and especially on how it, uh, how the the media and the politics of that time ran in in the same traces and uh, the, the synergy between media and politics, I highly recommend a dissertation in history by Matthew Isham, Breaking Over the Boundaries of the Party, the Role of Party Newspapers in Democratic Factionalism in the Antebellum North, 1845 to 1852. There's a link to this and uh, everything else uh, in the show notes. And I believe that's everything I wanted to mention. Thanks for listening. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Through the air with the greatest of ease A daring young man on the flying trapeze His movements were graceful, the girls he could please And my love he stolen away